This isn't about shared values. This is about Russians needing the hard currency. This is about the Chinese needing the equipment. And this is about blocking a Western-led democratic order in the 21st century. another episode of the post-pandemic order. My name is Julie Smith. I'm one of the hosts of this podcast. I'm also the director of the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. And today we have the pleasure of welcoming a friend of mine, Ambassador Richard Verma, who is currently the vice chair and partner at the Asia Group, but he also served as ambassador to India from 2014 to 2017, where he was able to to significantly deepen ties between India and the United States. And he's had 25 years of experience at the highest levels in the U.S. military. He served in the U.S. Air Force. He's worked in the private sector and in government. Rich, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, Julie, thank you so much. It's great to be with you. I'm, I'm really excited for our conversation and glad that you're doing this. So thank you. You also, I forgot to mention, recently completed your PhD at Georgetown. Am I correct? That's true. Although I I didn't tell anybody for about eight years that I was actually in this endeavor because I didn't think I would finish. But yes, it's great to get it behind me and really appreciate the flexibility of the folks at Georgetown that allowed me to do three years of field research in India, basically. But I took a leave of absence when we uh, when we headed to Delhi. Didn't think I'd ever finish. And when we came back in the summer of 17, I started writing again and ended up you know, writing on the history of the U.S.-India partnership, actually. And All of these things which are really kind of relevant in other relationships that we forget, that history really matters in these partnerships. And it just became clear to me that as officials from our government would show up or officials from business would show up in New Delhi, they really didn't know how complicated, how tortured some of our even just recent 70-year history with India was. And so I thought, let's try to dig into it, give people some context. So it was fun. It was actually a fun project and I'm glad I did it, but thank you for mentioning it. (laughs) Of course. You know, the Germans are big fans of multiple titles, so we could call you Ambassador Dr. Richard Verma. I won't even tell you the titles that people call me here in my house because they're not appropriate. (laughs) So yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, let's jump right in. So as we've talked about the longer-term implications of the global pandemic, you won't be surprised to hear that a lot of the conversations we've had with some of our past guests, and even in other conversations that all of us have been joining in the think tank community, there's a big focus for all the obvious reasons on China, and a very heavy focus not only on China because it's where the virus started, but also because of the current friction between U.S. and China and some of this wolf warrior diplomacy that we're seeing in places like Europe. But we've heard less about India uh, in this crisis. And so that's why we're especially grateful that you took the time to join us today. I really wanted to ask you, what's the story that we're really missing as it pertains to India, either in terms of how they're currently grappling with the crisis or to the point of this podcast, kind of what this holds for the future? 
Yeah, great, great set of questions. So thank you, Julie, for that. Let me go back a little bit, maybe go back two and a half months when India first went into its lockdown. There was no country that took the measures that India took. It was a countrywide lockdown across the board. It was notified, you know, with very short amount of, of preparation for people. And in fact, that was one of the crises that a lot of migrant workers got left behind, got stranded. It, it really showed how many people travel hundreds of miles with their families to try to uh, gain some livable wage each day. But in terms of its comprehensive nature, it was a complete shutdown. You couldn't go out for a walk. You couldn't go out for a jog. You couldn't go to the park. And this was in all the states and all the territories. So it was a massive effort. It's the first point. The second point is that they have a federal system like we do. And the Trump administration has taken a very different approach to using our federal system, saying the 50 states, the localities, the mayors, they're in charge. What they come up with will issue some fairly loose guidance from Washington. India didn't use that model of federalism at all. They had very strong central government orders. And so the states could do their own interpretation, but they could do no less than what the federal central government had ordered. And so that okay. was a very, very effective use of, of federalism. And, and third, I would just say it had a huge impact on the economy. And so here's an economy that was at the beginning of the year projected to grow at 7%. Even before uh, COVID, it had decreased to about 5 or 6%. Now they're talking about negative growth uh, for the year. They're talking about you know huge numbers of unemployed. So it's taken its toll, which has also created the spark for reopening. And they are now going through that painful process that, that we are. Final thing I'd say, the, the reason... They took such severe measures for anyone who has traveled through India, lived in India, worked in India. You appreciate the density of the living conditions, the poverty stricken nature of a lot of areas. And so the thought of social distancing, you know, is just right. more yeah. fictional. And and so there there could be this spark that sets off a massive number uh, of cases. Now, the cases are still increasing. They are um worried about the number of cases, but I think from a public health perspective, they feel like they have it somewhat under control. I keep saying to people the next two weeks really will dictate the shape of this thing. And I'll say it again here today. I think the next two weeks really will tell us whether they had the mix just right. But again, very tough situation. What we'll say, we keep talking about Asia leading the recovery a lot of that depends on where India ends up on this question, sure. just given its its scale. So I think everyone is watching India very closely. Now, thinking about kind of the future and as India looks at this tension between the U.S. and China, I mean, clearly they have to be thinking about some opportunities here as well, particularly as there's so much talk around the world about decoupling or diversifying supply chains. I mean, how do you think strategically India's thinking about its position in the world in kind of the post-pandemic environment? What 
if if you were meeting with counterparts across the government, what do you think some of those conversations would look like right now? I, I think it is exactly what they're thinking about. I I actually think they feel like there's an opportunity for them to play a much bigger leadership role on the world stage. So there's a lot going on here, right? They feel even though there's been a continued upward trajectory in the bilateral relationship with the Trump administration and President Trump and Prime Minister Modi have a nice little chemistry, no question about it. But there's no question they do feel the retrenchment of U.S. influence, not only globally, but in Asia for sure. And that has caused them to diversify their own set of relationships. They have doubled down on relationships with Japan, with Australia, with Germany, with France. They've tried to display greater leadership in the in the region. They have burgeoning relationship with Israel. So they've really diversified. At the same time, they see the pressure that the U.S. has placed on China. They know that companies are looking for alternative destinations on the supply side and on the production side, and they have made an aggressive push. In fact, there was a very kind of coordinated effort that they said they were going to try to attract a thousand U.S. companies from China into India. And they are quite serious about it. So they've done quite a substantial marketing campaign. The challenge that they face is still a structural challenge about ease of doing business, about the tax certainty, the legal certainty, the infrastructure, the real openness of the economy, all those things are getting a little bit better. They still have a ways to go, but they are clearly sensing an opportunity. And with that American retrenchment, they see an opportunity on the global stage in institutions. So for example, they are chairing uh, the World Health Organization during this particular period as well. And I think they actually want to do more and play a more active role in international institutions where we are pulling kind of the other direction. Final thing I would say about China, if there was a country that will animate the U.S.-India relationship, not only over the next two decades, but certainly the prior two decades, it was our closeness with India has been driven by our mutual concern about the rise of China. No question Mm -hmm. about it. And it's not just a military concern, it is an economic concern, and it is a concern about a Chinese order prevailing in Asia or a liberal democratic post-World War II order. And that's the great debate that's taking place across the continent. Sure, sure. Now, you did so much during your tenure as ambassador to really strengthen and fortify those ties. And as you noted, that path, that trend has been positive now for quite some time through a couple of different administrations. But when you look out, are you still are you still optimistic or do you sometimes wonder, you're still waiting to see how COVID's going to play out, some of those protectionist tendencies? I mean, do you, do you take a more optimistic view, irrespective of what's happening here in the United States, that we're on the right path and this relationship is going to get stronger going forward? It won't get stronger on its own, right? This is a relationship that needs tending to. It needs Mm -hmm. a lot of personal uh, relationships matter. There's a huge opportunity here, huge opportunity. We are not looking for an alliance with India. They are not looking for an alliance with us, but there is this, this incredible opportunity we're the world's two largest democracies, bit of a cliche, but we are the world's two largest democracies can actually come together 
and show the world what it means to be, quote unquote, natural allies. Oh, I, I talk a lot about being allies without the alliance. So what does that mean? That means having a trading relationship. That means having a strong military partnership. That means actually working maybe outside of our own borders, working on development assistance in key countries. That means working on clean energy, not just buying and selling from each other, but doing all those things that stick us together, that connect us in all those ways. And yes, where we have shared values, right? Inclusivity, tolerance, rule of law, constitutional democracies, civilian oversight of the military. I mean, uh, resolving disputes peacefully. All these things really matter. My concern is what we have done in Washington for the last three years, which is we're so interested in the transactional elements. We are so interested in the trade elements. We have forgotten about the glue that actually holds us together over time, and that is the values part of it. And so I am optimistic if we have a change in our thinking in Washington. To be honest, I'd be a little pessimistic if we continue along this kind of unilateral path where we bust open our alliances, not treat friends and foes basically the same. That would be really problematic, and I think it would spell the end of U.S. leadership in the in the world, and I think the Indians would see that uh, very clearly. Now, you mentioned India strengthening relationships in other places, including Europe, and because we're an organization that bridges the Atlantic, we have offices in Europe and here in Washington. I'm curious, um, you do hear more Europeans talking about the Indo-Pacific, about the importance of establishing a stronger relationship with India based in part on those values that you just talked about and enhancing ties with democratic allies. But when you look out at that agenda, I mean, how much of it is kind of an ambition where that's something that you think Europe is striving for? Or do you look at the new kind of sets of relationships that are unfolding, particularly between the EU and India? Do you, do you see real substance there? And in what categories? Is it the digital piece? I mean, where do we see the greatest amount of progress when it comes to Europe and India? I think it's real. It's not just aspirational. I look Mm -hmm. at what the French have done over the last 10 or 15 years. They've got French nuclear power plants being built. They've got French fighters being flown by the Indian Air Force. The French were active in helping India build the International Solar Alliance. I look at what the Germans have done on the corporate side in their kind of export of, of key technologies. I look at what the, the Swedes have done on their military side. I look at the UK, still very long, complicated relationship there, but still the range of people to people connections. So I don't think it's aspirational at all. I think it's real. And I think, look, we're all looking out at not only the India of today or the next two or three years, but we're looking out at the India of 2030, which will lead the world in almost every category, assuming it's on the trajectory it's on. It'll be the most populous. It'll have the biggest middle class. It'll have the world's most number of college graduates, the most internet users, the most cell phone users, the most mega cities, the third largest military, third largest economy, right? Like, this is a great story if things continue to to go in a, a, a decent direction. And, and look, they are surrounded by all kinds of threats. They've got all kinds of internal uh, challenges. They've got development challenges. And so they need great partners 
uh, like they have in Europe, like they have in, in East Asia with, with Japan and Korea. And for a while, I thought we in the United States were kind of in the pole position. I thought we, you know, as President Obama used to say, and, and Vice President Biden, we want to be their best partner. You know, it's kind of a race to be right, who right. could be on the inside track. And frankly, we had displaced Russia from a lot of the, that inside track on either, you know, military cooperation and defense sales. I think we can get back to that. Both sides have got to want it. And you've got to demonstrate the value to your collective populations. But I think we can I think we can do that. Well, I, I can't let this conversation go without obviously asking you about the tension on the border between India and China. A lot of concerns, a lot of folks around the world keeping a very close eye on this. Would love to get your take on the current state of play, what your interpretation is, expectations, predictions, but also particularly. What about the U.S.? In in that, what it, what is the U.S. role? If you were ambassador right now, what are some of the things you'd be recommending? Um, would love to hear your insights on this. Just on that last part, you know, I did. There was a, a tweet or two from President Trump who offered to mediate. You know, the, that's right. the, the crisis, which I just found, you know, really, it just was off in so many ways because it it treated it as a sense of equivalence. You know, as if both sides had had done something wrong and he was going to come in and save the day. Really, what happened is this was a Chinese incursion and it didn't occur in one area. It occurred in five different areas. You know, for your listeners, this is, if they don't know, this is a 2,200 mile border. Every square mile and kilometer of it is contested. And the disputes are decades in the making. And there have been wars fought over it, over the territory that is in dispute today. I think, you know, there was some question at the beginning of this current tension of whether this was accidental. Did the, you know, because you have a lot of military forces up there, they do come in contact with each other, and then they manage to kind of withdraw back to their respective corners. But this seemed so coordinated, and it seemed like it had a lot more direction to it. And I think that's what gave people concern, that there was a purpose to it. And it was either trying to send a signal or it was kind of taking advantage of India while it was in its own public health crisis. Whatever the motivation was, it's concerning and it's serious. And I think it's important that we voice our concerns about it. This mediation thing, again, is, is weird. But we should also remember that this is not new. And some, and again, some people may not know when Chinese forces were spilling across the Indian border in 1962, the U.S. actually did provide a lot of support to the Indians. And, and in some recently declassified letters that Prime Minister Nehru wrote to President Kennedy at the time, he wanted full U.S. military support to come in and actually fight this fight together. And it actually, at, at the time, the National Security Advisor and the Secretary of State sent urgent cables to then Ambassador Galbraith saying, do they really understand what they have just asked for? This would <laughs> fundamentally change the nature of our relationship if we were to go do this. Bruce Rydell writes a great book about this, and he says, but for the Cuban Missile Crisis occurring at the exact same time, Kennedy would have been inclined to provide that 
direct military support. Oh, that is fascinating. What he ended up doing was providing thousands of tons of ammunition, intelligence, basic logistics support. Eight flights a day were being flown in. Now, look, that's an amazing level of support in the, in 1962 that no one would have ever predicted. My only point of bringing that up is that we have been there for the Indians in the past when they needed us. And so this is serious. It's important. And it's, it's a reason why we have to have these close relationships. Final thing I would say on this, as serious as it is, there are incredible disincentives for actual conflict. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Look, just like the United States and China, India and China are incredibly economically tangled. They both need each other to have those mutual investments. Also, the positive side, like us, they talk to each other at all levels. The political leaders talk to each other. The military actually talks to each other. Unlike India, Pakistan, where you know exactly. you never know who's talking to who and there's a lot of bad signaling going on there, the Chinese-Indian lanes of communication are very open. So in recent years, really the last 20 to 30 years, when there have been these severe skirmishes, the machinery does turn on. People appreciate that actually going down this militarization path, the conflict path, is detrimental to both countries. And in fact, after the last standoff in 2017, both leaders actually had a summit in all places, uh, Wuhan, said, you know, look, it's in our mutual interest not to engage in these kinds of conflicts. So I'm still hopeful that that we will we will avoid a, a broader kind of escalation. No, thanks for that. Good to get those insights, but also good to get the history. Thanks for that little uh, tidbit there. That was that was fascinating. Yeah, I, and look, the history is not like we're talking about 200 years ago or 150 right. years ago. We're this is all recent history, and we tend we tend to forget it. Yeah. Well, maybe just one question in closing. We've talked a lot about kind of the triangle with the U.S. and Europe and India. And of course, we can add Japan in there and a couple of other democratic nations. But let's switch to a different triangle. I'm curious, what's it's been interesting to watch Russia and China engage India, sometimes on the margins of the G20. I mean, what is your perception of the so-called West's ability to shape that triangle as well? I mean, there's always these dreams of, well, you drive wedges and you kind of break down. We talk about that often as we relate to the Russians. Can you pull, you know, break up this relationship between Russia and China? And then what does that mean for their efforts to pull in other nations? So I don't know how you think about it. And in the wake of COVID, you know, should we be rethinking some of these dynamics, some of what we've come to see happen in the last couple of years? Yeah, I th- I'm so glad you asked that question because I think it's such a really a subject that is not talked about enough or explored enough. I am exceptionally concerned about growing coordination and alignment between Moscow and Beijing. Mm-hmm. I just am. You look at the leading provider of mili- advanced military hardware to the Chinese over the last few years, it's been the Russians. You look at the oil and gas sales between the two countries. Now, look, there's not a lot of, you know, we talk about shared values between the United States and India. This isn't about shared values. This is about a couple things. This is about Russians needing 
the hard currency. This is about the Chinese needing the equipment. And this is about blocking a Western-led democratic order in the 21st century. That's sure. what this is about. And, and I look, it has gotten the attention of the Indians, and they are actually quite concerned about it. So here's this steadfast partner through the Cold War, right? For decades, Indian students were educated in Moscow and other parts of, of the so- then Soviet Union, a close military partnership. Now, here is this partner in Russia that has sold advanced military equipment to the Chinese, that has blocked its effort to enter the nuclear suppliers group that has provided uh, reportedly equipment and training to the Taliban and, and played, you know, a dangerous game in Afghanistan that. So, look, they have their and has sold a lot of military equipment to the Pakistanis in, in recent years. So, again, back to, you know, who's a reliable partner and who's a trusted partner. I think the, the Russians have shown, at least vis-a-vis India, This is not the partnership of the 60s and 70s and 80s that the Indians once aspired to. And I actually think it does give us a new opportunity to work with India, not only for each of our security and prosperity, but to demonstrate to other countries in the region, there is a better way to operate. Right. There is a rules-based order. There is a transparent system. There is a fair system. There is an inclusive system. We're all going to have our interpretations about how to do it best. But gosh, that is going to be a better way of life for people, a more stable way of life than going down the path that both Russia and China have chosen. Yeah, absolutely. Right there with you. I think we're not spending enough time looking at that relationship between Beijing and Moscow. And uh, we probably will do more of that in the future. Listen, thanks so much uh, for joining us today. Really appreciate getting these insights. So glad that we could touch on India and spend some time on India today. Wishing you all the best during our continued quarantine time here in Washington, but hope to see you in person sometime real soon. Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you so much for having me and, and look forward to seeing you whenever this whole situation gets back to normal. In the meantime, stay safe and healthy. Thank you. Post-Pandemic Order is a podcast from the German Marshall Fund of the United States. It's produced and hosted by Julie Smith, Derek Cholet, and me, Rachel Tausenfreund. Zachary Tarrant is, as always, our sound engineer and boss man. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.